The Finding Holy podcast is where Ashley Hales sits down with authors, pastors, activists, and artists to help you connect the dots between the things that really matter and your everyday holy life. And you'll get to hear everyone's laundry routines. To listen to the Finding Holy podcast, go to aahales.com slash podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. May God Almighty take His Excellency and the other honorable branches of the government into His holy protection. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered. Today's sermon is titled, A Sermon on the Commencement of the Constitution. Doesn't really roll off the tongue very well, but it was preached by Samuel Cooper in 1780. Joel, when we talk about politics, there's almost nothing that can stir up controversy and make people heated quite like it. People are very passionate and they have very strong opinions. Or they're like a lot of people who try to avoid politics and don't want to get involved because they know it's kind of a nasty affair. Things are rough in the United States of America right now. There's a lot of partisanship. And as a Christian, it can sometimes be even harder because we want to voice our opinions, we want to tell what we feel or what we think, and at the same time, we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, and we don't want to get in the way of sharing the gospel. And so balancing all this out can be crazy. But in the sermon we're going to look at, we're going to go back in time to a place where things were actually crazier than they are today. Uh, we have to remember there was a time when disagreement actually meant pointing guns at each other and fighting each other on the street. And when we go back to the beginning, the revolution that started the United States of America, you can find a sermon by Samuel Cooper, who actually gives a really great antidote to the things that we see today. Yeah, Troy, I'm gonna, so I'm going to be honest with you, and I know you know this about me, but I don't talk a whole lot about politics, uh, and I don't really listen to a lot of podcasts where there's a lot of political talk in it. Um, but I do like this episode. I do like this topic because it is it is about a lot more than politics. This is about the birth of America. And I do find that aspect of this really fascinating. Samuel Cooper, he lived and he preached during the Revolutionary War. And he lived in Boston. Boston at that time is pretty much the center of the goings-ons. I mean, there's the Boston Tea Party and a whole lot of things happening in Boston. And, and he's right there in the middle of it, the preacher, so to speak. And, and in his congregation are some very uh, famous and important and influential people. I mean, in his congregation is uh, John Adams, future president, his son, John Quincy Adams, future president. Uh, we also have John Hancock, who was a regular attender of his church, who is currently the governor of Massachusetts at this time. And you also, he was great pen pals with men like Benjamin Franklin um, and Samuel Adams. I mean, this guy was really well connected to the people of the revolution. Yeah, you mentioned being pen pals with Benjamin Franklin. And these, these letters that he would write with Benjamin Franklin were actually a pretty big deal when the when the colonies went to war with Britain with King George the Third. King George the Third would actually collect he collected these letters and he would read them just to kind of learn more about the colonies to learn more about what they wanted and why they had why why they had left. Now, part of the reason why he's a big deal is because Samuel Cooper does a really great job of modeling what. I think a pastor should try to be during these hard times. And, and he, he was a man who balanced this role between state and church. 
you know, he didn't become a partisan or someone who who lifted politics of his day above the gospel. And remember, politics of his day was literally the war of the nation that got it started. So you could understand how that might be something that would influence you. And yet he didn't do that. He always tried to put everything in its proper place. He was at one point, they said, you know, you'll never really know what party he's in because he just did a really good job of uh, explaining himself away and putting putting the gospel at the center of it all. At the same time, though, he was very influential. He knew the players. He was involved in their lives. And he, he was very good at encouraging uh, what the United States of America, he believed it could be and what, what role it could go on to play in the world. Yeah, this so this sermon is it's a little bit different than ones we've heard previously here on Revive Thoughts. It It's preached a little bit earlier than a lot of the ones we've heard of. It's in the 1700s. Uh, and it's also primarily being preached in front of a crowd of a lot of politicians. This, again, was being preached during the commencement of the Constitution of Massachusetts. This was the birth of Massachusetts as a state. Uh, so that's that's the audience, a, a room full of, of leaders. Uh, and, and Cooper's kind of bringing this, this vision of government, a biblical government, before these people here. Uh, and there's there's a lot of there's a lot of really neat aspects to it. It it, it is again kind of different to listen to. It takes you a little bit while to get used to how how he's talking and the wording of it. There's a lot of kind of neat history in it as as well. There's like a portion where they're talking about how there are people in Britain in Parliament who are in support of America's cause for revolution. Uh, things like that. Like you, you don't you don't hear that type of stuff in history books. Too often we, we hear about basically from atheists or deists and other people that the United States of America wasn't founded by Christians. You know, these people were actually kind of naturalists and they didn't really care a whole lot about God. And that's true in the cases of maybe some of the founding fathers. But this sermon is preached at the commencement. I mean, this is the very birth of Massachusetts. This is the sermon. This is the guy they brought in. You know, presidents were sitting under this guy. And it's important to remember that preachers, pastors, ministers did play a role in the Revolutionary War and in the founding of the United States of America. And also, there's a war going on. Maybe some of these people's kids are actually serving in that war. They're fighting for this cause, for this thing that had never seen before. And he gives this sermon saying, what could make America a great nation? And what he says is basically, America needs men of integrity, of godly values to run it. You know, he doesn't put forth a specific tax policy. He doesn't put forth a specific uh, you know, immigration policy or any of those things that we, you see us debating a lot in American culture today. What he says is basically men of integrity who love God, who serve God, who know their place in God's kingdom and serve under him will make good and godly righteous decisions that will lead a nation to be a good and godly righteous nation. And I think if we could get back to that vision and go back to a place where that godliness is, is important to us, important to our leaders, we can see that vision of what he was what he was envisioning, what America at her best was, could come back to us again. Their congregation will be established before me, and their nobles will be of themselves, and their governor will proceed from the midst of them. Jeremiah 30, 20, and 21. This prophecy seems to have been made for ourselves. It is so descriptive of that essential civil blessing, which kindles the heart and diffuses the joy of the present day. 
And it is not the only passage of Holy Scripture that holds up to our view of a striking resemblance between our own circumstances and those of the ancient Israelite. A nation chosen by God, a theater for the display of some of the most astonishing dispensations of his providence. Like that nation, we rose from oppression and emerged from the house of bondage. Like that nation, we were led into a wilderness as refuge from tyranny and as a preparation for the enjoyment of our civil and religious rights. Like that nation, we have been pursued through the sea by the armed hand of power, which, but for the help of heaven, must before now have totally defeated the noble purpose of our pilgrimage. And, to omit many other instances of similarity, like that nation, we have been ungrateful to the supreme ruler of the world and too lightly esteemed the rock of our salvation. Accordingly, we have been corrected by his justice and at the same time remarkably supported and defended by his mercy. This day, this memorable day, is a witness that the Lord, he whose hand makes great and gives strength to all, has not forsaken us, nor our God forgotten us. This day, which forms a new error in our annals, exhibits a testimony to all the world that, contrary to our deserts and amidst all our troubles, the blessing promised in our text to the afflicted seed of Abraham is here. Their nobles will be of themselves, and their governor will proceed from the midst of them. This prophecy has an immediate respect to the deliverance of the Jews from the cruel oppressions of the king of Babylon. Their sufferings, when they fell under the power of this haughty tyrant, as they are represented to us in sacred history, must shake a heart softened with the least degree of humanity. Such are the fruits of lawless and despotic power in a mortal man intoxicated with it. Such desolations does it make in the earth, such havoc in the family of God, merely for the sake of enlarging its bounds and impressing its terror on the human heart. It often, indeed, claims a divine original and impudently supports itself, not barely on the permission, but the express designation of him whose tender mercies are over all his works. Though it exactly resembles the grand adversary of God and man, and is only a roaring lion that seeks whom he may devour. To plead a divine right for such a power is truly to teach the doctrine of the devils. So says the Lord of hosts, I will break his yoke from off your neck, and I will burst your bonds, and strangers will no more make your servants, but you will serve the Lord your God. And the city will be built upon her own heap, and they will come and sing in the height of Zion. And the fields will be bought on this land where you say it is desolate. It is given to the hand of the Chaldeans. Men will buy fields for money. Their children also will be as before. And their congregation, their religious and civil assemblies, will be established before me. And I will punish all that oppress them. And their nobles will be of themselves. And their governor will proceed from the midst of them. And I will cause him to draw near, and he will approach me. When Nebuchadnezzar invaded the land of Judea, 
and brought upon it such devastations and miseries, it was governed by a king who shared in the captivity of his subjects and was led with them by the conqueror in chains to Babylon. But in the happy restoration promised in our text, it is observed that the royal part of their government was not to be renewed. No mention is made of this refreshing prediction of a king, but only of nobles, men of principal character and influence, who were to be of themselves and such as they would conduct their affairs, and a governor who should also proceed from the midst of them and preside over all, clothed with a tempered authority and dignity, not with arbitrary power and the means of gratifying an unbounded avarice and ambition, the form of government originally established in the Hebrew nation by a charter from heaven was that of a free republic, over which God himself, in peculiar favor to that people, was pleased to preside. It consisted of three parts, a chief magistrate, who was called a judge or leader, such as Joshua and others, a council of 70 chosen men, and the general assemblies of the people. Of these last two were the most essential and permanent, and the first more occasional, according to the particular circumstances of the nation. Their council, or Sanhedrin, remained but with temporary suspension through all their vicissitudes they experienced until after the commencement of the Christian era. And as to the assemblies of the people, that they were frequently held by divine appointment and the considered as the foundation of civil power, which they exerted by their own decrees or distributed into various channels as they judged most conductive to their own security, order, and happiness, is evident beyond contradiction from the sacred history. Even the law of Moses, yo framed by God himself, was not imposed upon that people against their will. It was laid open before the whole congregation of Israel. They freely adopted it, and it became their law, not only by divine appointment, but by their own voluntary and express consent. Upon this account, it is called in the sacred writings a covenant. A solemn renewal of this covenant was the very last public act of Joshua, their renewed leader. He gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel and for the heads of the judges and the officers, and they presented themselves before God. The occasion was great and important, being nothing less than to renew their acceptance of the constitution they had received from heaven. In a short address to the assembly, he reminded them of their small origins of the particular favors granted by heaven to them, of their remarkable deliverance from the slavery of Egypt, of the wonders wrought for them by a divine hand in their progress through the wilderness, in the conquests on the borders of Canaan, in the firm possession of that promised land. He warmly declares his own resolution to abide by that noble cause for which they had been led by heaven and formed into a distinct and respectable nation. But as the memorable act of the day, 
depended entirely on the consent of the people, he accordingly refers the matter to their own free determination. Choose you this day who you will serve. It was impossible for the people not to be moved by such an address, not to discern the excellency of the Mosaic law, how well they were adapted to the particular circumstances of the nation and the noble purposes they were designated to promote. The people replied, The Lord our God we will serve. We consent and are determined to be governed by the laws and the statutes he has been so graciously pleased to afford us. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourself that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. Such a constitution, twice established by the hand of heaven in that nation, so far as it respects civil, religious liberty in general, ought to be regarded as a solemn recognition from the supreme ruler himself of the rights of human nature. Abstracted from those particular formalities which were peculiar to the Jews, and designated to answer some particular purposes of divine providence, it points out in general what kind of government infinite wisdom and goodness would establish among mankind. We are not in want of a special revelation from heaven to teach us that men are born equal and free, that no man has a natural claim of dominion over his neighbors, nor one nation any such claim upon another, and that as government it is only the administration of the affairs of a number of men combined for their own security and happiness. Such a society has a free right freely to determine by whom and in what manner their own affairs will be administered. These are the plain dictates of that reason and common sense with which the common parent of men has informed the human bosom in one internal mark of their divine origin who has made of one blood all nations to dwell upon the face of the earth, whose authority sanctifies only those governments that instead of oppressing any part of his family, vindicate the oppressed and restrain and punish the oppressor. Upon our present independence, sweet and valuable as the blessing is, we may read the inscription, I am found of them that sought me not. Be it to our praise or blame, we cannot deny that when we were not searching for it, it happily found us. Going upon the trite metaphor of a mother country, which has so often been weakly urged against us, like a child grown to maturity, we had a right to a distinct settlement in the world, and to the fruits of our own industry. It is certain, however, that we did not seek an independence, and it is equally certain that Britain, though she meant to oppose us with all her power, has, by a strange infatuation, taken the most direct and perhaps the only methods that could have established it. Her oppressions, her unrelenting cruelty, have driven us out from the family of which we were once a part. This has opened our eyes to discern the inestimable blessings of a separation from her. 
While, like children that have been inhumanely treated and cast out by their parents, and at the same time are capable of taking care of themselves, we have found a friendship and respect from the world, and have formed new, advantageous, and honorable connections. Britain, in her conduct towards these states, has given a fresh proof of the truths of observation that cruelty is inhumane. She has attempted to destroy by her arms in America what she professes to defend by those very arms on her own soil. Such is the nature of man, such the tendency of power, in a nation as well as a single person. It makes a perpetual effort to enlarge itself and presses against the bounds that confine it. It loses by degrees all idea of right but its own. And therefore, that peoples must be unhappy who have nothing but humble petitions and the feeble voice of a charter to oppose the arms of another nation, that claims a right to bind them in all cases whatsoever. The true charter of liberty is independency supported by force. It is with the point of the sword that the diplomas that ratify this natural right must be signed. Heaven and earth can bear witness to these states are innocent of the blood that has been shed and the miseries diffused by this unrighteous war. We have stood upon the ground of justice, honor, and liberty and acted merely as a defensive part. Not unreasonable in our demands, not violent in our counsels, our moderation has been known to all men. And without refusing a single claim that Britain could in equity make upon us, our persons, our property, our rights have been invaded in every step that led to this revolution. I do not wish that this should be taken for granted barely upon our own declaration. Without appealing to foreign nations whose conduct towards us demonstrates what opinion they form of our principles and measures, we have an acknowledgement of this truth, of this assertion from Britain itself, from men of approved wisdom, integrity, and candor, from some of the first characters and brightest ornaments of her own government, from innumerable speeches in her parliament, and from solemn protests in her House of Lords. Allow me particularly to mention on this occasion the letters of Mr. Hartley, member of the British House of Commons for Hull, to his constituents, in which he gives a detail of the measures of that government respecting America, and upon which he says, Thinking, as I have always thought, that the foundation and prosecutions of the war against America has been unjust, I have taken some pains to lay open those insidious arts which ministers have practiced, that I may contribute my feeble efforts to vindicate my country at large from so grievous a charge as that of supporting an unjust cause, knowing it to be unjust. In another place, he says, When all those transactions will come hereafter to be revised in some cooler hour, I am confident that there is not a man with a British heart who will not say that in the same circumstances he would have acted as the Americans have done. Nothing can be more full to the point than this acknowledgement from a gentleman of such distinguished character. Many worthy individuals, with himself, abhorred the injustice and cruelty. 
In the protests of the Lords against the prohibitory bill, the dissident peers say, We are preparing the minds of the Americans for that independence we charge them with inciting, while we drive them to the necessity of it by repeated injuries. I rejoice that the Americans have resisted, said the Lord Chasm in Parliament, a short but full testimony from a great man to the justice of our cause. So we are acquitted from the guilt of all this blood that cries from the ground by the public declarations of many of the wisest and best men in Britain, men who perfectly knew all the measures of her government and all that could be offered to justify them being themselves part of the government. With all this justice on our side, we still put our cause to great danger by delaying to declare ourselves a separate nation, even after Britain had with her own hands violently broken every bond of union. I need not enlarge before such an audience upon the particular excellencies of this Constitution, how effectually it makes the people the keepers of their own liberty, with whom they are certainly safest. How nicely it poises the powers of government in order to render them, as far as human foresight can, what God ever designed they should be, powers only to do good. How happily it guards, on the one hand, against anarchy and confusion, and on the other, against tyranny and oppression. How carefully it separates the legislative from the executive power, a point essential to liberty, how wisely it has provided for the impartial execution of the laws in the independent situation of the judges, a matter of capital moment, and without which the freedom of a constitution in other respects might be often diluted and not realized in the just security of the person and property of the subject. Everything will then be done for the public welfare. Every labor necessary to this will be cheerfully endured, every expense readily submitted to, every danger boldly confronted. May this heavenly flame animate all orders of men in this state. May it catch from bosom to bosom, and the glow be universal. May a double portion of it inhabit the chests of our civil rulers, and impart a luster to them like that which was on the face of Moses, when he came down from the holy mountain with the tables of the Hebrew constitution in his hands. Such men must naturally care for our state. Men whose abilities and virtues have obtained a sanction from the free suffrages of their enlightenment and virtuous fellow citizens. Men who have generously neglected their private interests in an ardent pursuit of that to the public men who have opposed one of the greatest powers on earth and put their fortunes and lives to no small risk in fixing the basis of our freedom and honor. Who can forbear congratulating in our rising state and casting up a thankful eye to heaven upon this great and singular occasion, the establishment of our congregation, our nobles, freely chosen by ourself and our governor, coming forth at the call of his country from the midst of us. May God Almighty 
take his excellency and the other honorable branches of the government, the lieutenant governor, the council, the senate, and the house of representatives into his holy protection, and unite them in measures glorious to themselves and happy to their country. The people of a free state have a right to express from those whom they have honored with the direction of their public concerns a faithful and unremitting attention to those concerns. He who accepts a public trust pledges himself, his sacred honor, and by his official oath appeals to his God that with all good fidelity and to the utmost of his capacity he will discharge this trust. And that commonwealth which does not keep an eye of care upon those who govern and observe how they behave in their several departments in order to regulate its suffrages upon this standard will soon find itself discomposed and cannot expect long to preserve either its dignity or happiness. Dignity of conduct is ever connected with the happiness of a state, particularly at its rise and at its first appearance it makes in the world. Then all eyes are turned upon it. They view it with attention. The first impressions it makes are commonly lasting. This circumstance must render their conduct of present rulers extra important and fall with particular weight upon their minds. Righteousness, says one of the greatest politicians and wisest princes that ever lived, righteousness exalts a nation. This truth does not barely rest upon his own, but on a divine authority, and the truth of it has been verified by the experience of all ages. Our civil rulers will remember that piety and virtue support the honor and happiness of every community. They are especially required in a free government. Virtue is the spirit of a republic. For where all power is derived from the people, all depends on their good disposition. If they are impious, factious, and selfish, then they are abandoned to idleness dissipation, luxury, and extravagance. If they are lost to the fear of God and the love of country, all is lost. Neither piety, virtue, or liberty can long flourish in a community where the education of youth is neglected. How much do we owe to the care of our venerable ancestors upon this important object? Had not they laid such foundations for training up their children in knowledge and religion, in science and arts, should we have been so respectable a community as we this day appear? Should we have understood our rights so clearly, or valued them so highly, or defended them with such advantage? We may, therefore, be confident that the schools, and particularly the universities, founded and cherished by our wise and pious fathers, will be patronized and nursed by a government which is so much indebted to them for its honor, and the very principles of its existence. The present circumstances of those institutions call for the kindest attention of our rulers, and their close connection with every public interest, civil and religious, strongly enforces the call. The sciences and arts, for the encouragement of which a new foundation has lately been laid in this commonwealth, 
deserve the countenance and particular favor of every government. They are not only ornamental, but useful. They not only polish, but support, enrich, and defend a community. As they delight in liberty, they are particularly friendly to free states. They may be guided by a silken thread, and the mild punishments proper to a free state are sufficient to guard the public peace. At present, the voice of providence, the call of our still invaded country, and the cry of everything dear to us, all unite to rouse us to prosecute the war with redoubled vigor, upon the success of which all our free constitutions, all our hopes, depend. It is laudable to lay the foundations of our republic with large dreams. Rome rose to empire because she early thought herself destined for it. The great object was continually before the eyes of her sons. It enlarged and invigorated their minds. It excited their vigilance. It elated their courage and prepared them to embrace the toils and dangers and submit to every regulation friendly to the freedom and prosperity of Rome. They did great things because they believed themselves capable and born to do them. Conquest is not the aim of our rising state. Sound policy must forever forbid it. We have before us an object much greater and more honorable. We seem called by heaven to make a large portion of this globe a seat of knowledge and liberty, of agriculture, commerce, and arts, and what is more important than all, of Christian piety and virtue. O you supreme governor of the world, whose arm has done great things for us, establish the foundations of this commonwealth, and evermore defend it with the saving strength of your right hand. Grant that here the divine constitutions of Jesus, your Son, may ever be honored and maintained. Grant that it may be the residence of all private and patriotic virtues, of all that enlightens and supports, all that sweetens and adorns human society, till the states and kingdoms of this world will be swallowed up in your own kingdom. In that which alone is immortal, may we obtain a perfect citizenship and enjoy in its completion the glorious liberty of the sons of God. And let all the people say, Amen. There's this part in the sermon where he talks about how politicians and these leaders are supposed to be public servants and they're supposed to be willing to give up, you know, so much from themselves to make the United States of America and and in this case, Massachusetts, a better place. And I think that that is extremely true. We don't think of these people as serving us anymore. We think of them as kind of coming in and they get, you know, their own power, their own money, whatever it is. But if they could get back to a place where they were serving us, I think that would be great. And yet also, it's not just them. You know, we all 
as humans. You know, this whole sermon's about the United States of America and politicians and leaders, but this sermon is just as applicable to people living in other countries, to people who are never interested in politics as it is to any of us, because we all need to work on being better servants and being more willing to give up of ourselves for the love of others and to be willing to have integrity for that. Thank you for listening to this episode of Revive Thoughts. Today's sermon was narrated by Levi Landrigan. If you like today's episode, you can find the transcript for it on revivethoughts.com. If you like this episode, please be sure to share it with a friend, let others know what we are doing at Revive Thoughts, and put it up on social media. And while you're on social media, you can find us on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. Also, if you would like to preach or narrate a sermon, we are always looking for new speakers who can take on the voices of different preachers throughout history. Go on our website, revivethoughts.com, and you can find out more information how you can also do a sermon with us. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts. I hope you enjoyed that podcast, and if you did, I'd like to also invite you over to the Finding Holy podcast, where Ashley Hales sits down with authors, pastors, activists, and artists to help you connect the dots between things that really matter in issues of faith and your everyday holy life. You'll even get to hear about the laundry routines. Go to aahales.com slash podcast or listen to the Finding Holy podcast wherever you choose to listen to your shows.